0: Thanks for tuning in to MANA, a short daily meditation to feed hungry souls with God's Word. These episodes were prepared by ordained ministers for a radio broadcast called Voice of the Church and are now republished by the Reformed Perspective Foundation, a Canadian charity that applies biblical truth to the issues of our time. Here's today's serving. Hello and welcome to Voice of the Church. I'm Pastor Ryan Swale and I hope over the the next few weeks, I think about the Song of Songs or uh, the Song of Solomon. Beginning today just with uh, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. I've been preaching through this in the church that I pastor, and uh, more than once people have have said to me, I've never known what to do with this book. What helps if we start with this first verse that introduces it? And so as we ask the question, what do we do with the Song of Songs? I want to draw a few things out of this opening verse. The first thing we notice is that it's a song. This tells us something about literary genre. It's poetry. It's not given to us as a step-by-step manual for marital technique or an historical catalog of Solomon's love life, but a poem, drawing us in to the drama, not given first of all to inform, but to make us feel, to evoke the imagination, the affections, to draw us in to the drama. And I say drama because this book is not a a collection of unrelated poems, but a single unified song. We're drawn in to watch the story unfold from anticipation in the first chapter and a half to a consummation towards the, the middle of the book, and then towards the end, conflict and reconciliation. There is a flow to the poetry. It's a song, and it's a unified song. And this song is also a scriptural song. That's the second thing we see. It's uh, different than the kind of songs you hear on the radio, but inspired by God and placed in the middle of our Bibles, which begin back in Genesis with a marriage, and then our Bible ends in Revelation with a marriage. And right in the middle of our Bibles is this song, what some have called the soundtrack of the story of redemption. The Bible tells the story of God wedding a people to his son, the the prelude to which is is given in Genesis chapter 2. The story ends in Revelation 19, and this book, right in the middle of our Bibles, sings that song. That's how the church has always read it. It's a scriptural song. It's also why there are scriptural themes woven throughout it, gardens, vineyards, a shepherd and a king, the city of Zion, the covenant refrain, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, which sounds a lot like I will be your God and you will be my people. That covenant refrain that we find all throughout our Bibles, scriptural themes abound, which leads to a third observation. It is a Solomonic song. The verse one says it's of Solomon who is referred to in verse four of chapter one as the king who dwells in Zion or Jerusalem. It is called a shepherd in verse uh, seven and and eight of chapter one, because that's how the Davidic king is designated in the Bible, as a shepherd. Solomon, the, the son of David, is explicitly referred to in chapter three, verse 11, where it says, go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon on the day of his wedding. This song is Solomonic. It's about David's son. And that's a key to understanding the book because the messianic bridegroom in the Bible is also the son of David promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This poetic depiction of Solomon, who Matthew twelve thirty-eight says is a type of Christ, points us to Jesus. And this is not allegory, it's typology. It's not skipping over the historical context of the song, but recognizing the context as that of David's royal son with whom the covenant of grace is bound up and interpreting these scriptural themes within the unfolding drama of redemption. It's recognizing that as poetry, this song is evocative and points us beyond Solomon to a hero who is typified in this book whose beauty and loving care for his bride are prefigured in this song, whose union with us in that garden city to come of which Revelation speaks is prefigured in the garden imagery throughout this book. This book is far more than a manual for marriage or a detailed description of Solomon's love life, but is a poetic portrayal of the Eden-like intimacy that will exist between Solomon's son, the royal bridegroom, and his bride. And that Eden-like intimacy, that love beyond compare, is the greatest thing we could ever contemplate, the greatest theme that we could ever sing of. Which is precisely what we're told in the title. The book is not called The, the Song of Solomon, but The Song of Songs. In other words, the greatest song, the superlative song, the song of which nothing better could be sung. Of the 1,005 songs that the Bible says Solomon wrote, this is his number one hit. Of all the songs in the Bible, you think of the the song of Moses, the song of Mary, the songs of Deborah and and Hannah, the Psalms of David. Of all the songs in the Bible, this one is called the superlative song song that's the fourth thing we see in this opening verse it is the superlative song in the same way that we speak of the most holy place as the holy of holies or the greatest king as the king of kings the the lord of lords the opening verse of this song uses the superlative song of songs to describe this song jonathan edwards said the name by which Solomon calls it confirms that it is more than an ordinary love song, but a divine song of divine authority. For we read in 1 Kings 4 that Solomon's songs were 1,005, but this he calls the Song of Songs. That is the most excellent of all his songs. For it's a song of the most excellent subject, treating the love, union, and communion between Christ and his bride, of which marriage and conjugal love is but a shadow. There is a tendency amongst uh, modern scholars and a desire to be relevant in our age of sexual chaos, not only to ignore the history of interpretation that sees this book as speaking of gospel realities... But also to rush past the introductory verse of 1 verse 1, which calls it the greatest song. If this is the greatest song in the Bible, would it not be odd for it to only be about sex? Not to say it has nothing to do with that or has nothing to say to the sexual chaos all around us, but this song is in the Bible. It's about David's son, it's about a garden. It is therefore about the union and communion that will exist forever in that Eden-like garden between the son of David and his beloved bride. It's a song about the greatest love story after which every good love story and every good love song is patterned because the feelings of love and the beauty of marriage that God has given as gifts are intended as signs of something greater, which is what the book concludes by telling us a song of songs, eight, verse six. It says, love is as strong as death, jealousy, as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flames of fire, the very flame of Yahweh. The book ends by telling us that human love points beyond itself to the Lord of love. That human love is a flash of divine love. And so marriage points beyond itself. The marriage that is sung of in this song points beyond itself to the Lord of love who unites himself to his people in marital bliss. And it's precisely in that way that this book then actually has everything to say to the sexual chaos all around us. We go into the battle underarmed and unequipped if we make this song only about sex and not about Christ. Because we miss the fact that what makes the sexual chaos all around us so wrong is that it ruins the gospel story that marital love is meant to tell. Not only is this book a song, and not only is it a scriptural song, the Solomonic song, the superlative song that sings the most excellent of all subjects, but as we look at the gospel content of this song, it confronts the various distortions of marital love that we see all around us. And so the last thing we see is that this song is a sage song. It has wisdom for us. That's why it's found in the section of the Bible called Wisdom Literature. Because it teaches us how to enjoy the gifts of sex and marriage in a way that is patterned after the heavenly reality of the son of David and his bride. It teaches us that sex is a good thing given by God, not a dirty thing to be ashamed of. It teaches us that it's to be reserved for marriage. It teaches us not to stir up or awaken it until marriage. It teaches us that marriage is covenantal and binding till death do us part. It teaches us that it's heterosexual and monogamous, a male and female differentiated union. It arms us for the battles of our day. It speaks to pornography and the dangers of not pursuing purity. In all of this, it models for us the way that things should be and exposes for us the ways that we all fall short and therefore need the bridegroom of heaven of whom this song sings, who pursues us despite our sin and gives us his righteousness in that holy union that marriage depicts. And so if you're listening today, I invite you to consider how this song sings the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How in so doing, it shows us the way that things ought to be and the very reason why we need him. To heal our sexual brokenness and sin. And to be given his righteousness by faith. That's the love that this song sings. Thanks for listening.